14. The letter of the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. We are ending today a mini-series we've been preaching through an interesting and some would say controversial section of Scripture, chapters 12 through 14. I hope it's been helpful to you. I've certainly enjoyed it. We're calling this sermon, When the Spirit Comes to Church, part two from last week, for the Spirit joins us, as it were, every single Sunday. So let's ask Him to meet us right now. Spirit of God, we thank You that You indeed are here to manifest, make known Your presence to bless every time we gather. So Spirit, we ask You to open the eyes of our hearts, grant us the gift of illumination as we hear and look at the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. The passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Josie. I was recently reading an article about politics, and I came across an unfamiliar term, so I had to look it up. The term was a Faustian bargain, Faustian bargain. Apparently, Faust was or is a character in German folklore, and in the legend, he trades his soul to the devil or some evil being in other versions, trades his soul to the devil in exchange for otherwise unattainable knowledge and power. So as I understand it, a Faustian bargain is kind of a deal with the devil. It's a bad trade. You are selling your soul for something far less valuable. You're trading what is supremely valuable for what is less valuable. 
Many see a Faustian bargain when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit operating in the Sunday service. For some, it's a bad trade when you allow spiritual gifts like New Testament prophecy in the service. They say that opens the door to a devaluing of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The next thing you know, you're handling snakes. Is that a Faustian bargain, a bad trade in your eyes when it comes to these gifts? For you, would you say everything here, everything needs to be planned and predictable? Your life verse is verse 40 that Jossie read. All things should be done decently and in order. Everything should be predictable or you open the door to chaos. Is that your view of these gifts of the Spirit in the Sunday service? Or would you say, Tab, I see a Faustian bargain, a bad trade in your devotion to planning. It's the idolatry of the predictable. You see a Faustian bargain, a bad trade when it comes to structure and and intentionality with with creeds and and sacraments, responsive readings and, and benedictions. That for you is trading the work of the Spirit for empty ritual. Which is the Faustian bargain in your mind? Almost a deal with the devil. In which case do you think the church ends up selling her soul? Embracing the structured or embracing the spontaneous? Embracing the planned or embracing the unplanned? In which way are we trading what is valuable for what is far less valuable? Well, this passage is a great place to answer that question. Here we get a glimpse, a glimpse into what gathered worship was to look like, at least for some early Christians. And here we find three ingredients, three ingredients they were to hold together in their Sunday services, three ingredients that we, friends, should hold together ourselves when we gather right here. The first ingredients I would call ordered spontaneity. Here's ingredient number one for our gathered worship, ordered Spontaneity. Look at verse 26 with me. The apostle says, What then, brothers or brothers and sisters? What's the, what's the upshot of what I've been saying about spiritual gifts for three chapters? What's the bottom line for your Sunday services? When you come together like this, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, that's a variety of elements that seems quite spontaneous, don't you think? Imagine someone shows up with a hymn they wrote that week, a song. Scott, guess what? Someone else has a lesson, a teaching. Sit down, Tab. Someone else has a revelation through the gift of New Testament prophecy. Someone has a tongue, a prayer, an unlearned language. Someone else has an interpretation. It seems quite spontaneous to me, especially as you read on. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, individuals are about to prophesy. They're about to share what God has laid on their hearts. And then another person says, hey, I sense something different. That person, the first person is supposed to stop, be silent. The next person is supposed to share. 
It's quite spontaneous, don't you think? Now, we don't know how large these meetings were. And it is, it is easier and often wiser for this degree of spontaneity to take place in smaller settings. I don't think all of us can bring a song today. I don't think all of us can bring a teaching today. I don't think all of us can share a prophetic impression to a gathering this size, but we can at least say this much. The Sunday service in Corinth was to have real spontaneous elements. And this, friends, is something Jesus lived and died and rose to bring about. Notice in verse 26, these spontaneous elements could be done by each one. Do you see that? Each one as a hymn, lesson, revelation, etc. In the Old Testament, we're often shown the Spirit of God coming upon particular people for particular tasks. A guy named Bezalel is filled with the Spirit, we're told, to design and create various uh, objects or things for the tabernacle, the tent for worship. Or in the book of Judges, God raises up real Spirit-empowered deliverers, Gideon and Samson and the like, and they rout armies by the Spirit's power, one with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, that's incredible spiritual power. That's the Old Testament pattern. The Spirit empowering particular people for particular tasks, but then God spoke through the prophet Joel of another day. In Joel chapter 2, we read the following, And it shall come to pass afterward, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, on all my people. And notice, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now that's not just the Bezalels, Gideons, and Samsons. That's all of God's people. Regardless of gender, sons and daughters. Regardless of age, old men, young men. Regardless of station in life, male and female servants. And friends, we live in that day today. After the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on a day called Pentecost, the ascended and glorified Savior poured out the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a more pronounced way on His people. And that's why we read in verse 26, each one. Each one. It's you and you and you and you and you. And all of you have a contribution to make in some capacity. So let's apply this. Come on Sundays, as we've been saying, come on Sundays, not just for what you can get, I hope you come for that reason, but also for what you can give to other people. How God may want to use you to build others up. That may take a great variety of forms, but God will use you in spirit-empowered ways to build up other people. Come to your small group this way as well. That's where I would start if this is new for you. Go to your small group, your next small group meeting, 
praying on the way over, God, use me to build up other people in this meeting, please. For he says in verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one in varying ways. It's spontaneous, and yet these spontaneous elements must be ordered. They must be used, we find, in an orderly fashion for the purpose in verse 26. Did you notice that? Let all things, all things be done for what? For building up, for edifying people. That's why you read in verses 27 and 28, for the gift of unlearned languages of prayer, the apostle says, okay, two or three at most. No more tongues fest in Corinth. Two or three at most. They must be interpreted or don't do it at all. I want some order to this, he says. Same with the prophets in verses 29 and 30. Let two or three speak. All right, that spiritual gift is not to take over the service either. We're not having prophecy-centered meetings. He says two or three at most, each one in turn, one at a time, and the others weigh what is being said. These gifts are to be used in an orderly fashion, an orderly fashion because that's the nature of God himself, he says in verse 33. For, look at verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So if you're concerned about what I'm talking about, let us remind ourselves of the nature of God and what our meetings should look like in light of his nature. He is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You know, I would add here as well, there are, there are what I would call ordered elements called for in Scripture, described in Scripture, or modeled for us in Scripture that are also right and good for us to do in addition to what we read about. For instance, a call to worship modeled in many psalms like we did earlier, greeting one another like we did a moment ago, modeled in Romans 16, singing as we find in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, praying as we find in Ephesians 6, public reading of Scripture as Jossie did, 1 Timothy 4, preaching and teaching, 2 Timothy 4, confession of sin is modeled in James chapter 5, recitation of creeds like those found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy 3, the Lord's Supper found in 1 Corinthians 11, financial giving, 1 Corinthians 16, blessing or benediction, 2 Corinthians 13, and many other places. I would call those ordered elements, ordered elements because they just don't tend to happen spontaneously on their own. Hey, I know, let's take the Lord's Supper right now. Just had an idea. So there's not a Faustian bargain, a bad trade between the spontaneous and the ordered here. We're not to set against each other each one's spontaneity and these planned elements, there should be intentional planning. The Spirit works through planning. Intentional planning with intentional room planned for the spontaneous. That's the first ingredient. Let's call it ordered spontaneity. Here's the second ingredient. It's a bit of an inference, but I think you'll see that as we go on. A second ingredient for our gathered worship, let's call it active leadership. Active leadership. Verse 33. Weren't you waiting for me to hit this one? 
as in all the churches of the saints, the women should, be, should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So were we wrong to have Jossie read that passage a moment ago? And were we wrong to have Sarah up here participating in the announcement about the youth retreat? And are we wrong to have women prophesying or praying in our services as they often do? Well, first, we can be sure of what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the absolute silence of women in gathered praise. In this same letter, friends, the apostle is glad for women to pray and prophesy in gathered worship in chapter 11. Now, he talks about a symbol of authority on her head. We won't get into all that right now. We're doing enough controversial stuff as it is. But ladies are prophesying and ladies are praying in church in chapter 11. So chapter 14 cannot mean the absolute silence of women. And that's not even mentioning the each one in verse 26 or that you can all prophesy in verse 31 or Joel chapter 2, men and women prophesying as part of the covenant community. So what does this mean? Well, here's, I think, a helpful saying. It's not original with me. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> Don't proof text with this. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, what's the context? You need to know that and think about that. The immediate context here includes, did you notice, the evaluation of what's being shared through the gift of New Testament prophecy in the service. That was verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh, evaluate what is said. Now, certainly, certainly everyone should participate, that, participate in that in ways, considering for yourself, hmm, is that right? Does that line up with Scripture? But it seems to be a leadership function implied as well. It may be that in Corinth, these prophecies were being weighed orally, sort of debated publicly. And certainly that could include publicly correcting things that were shared prophetically if necessary. Someone would get up, a leader would need to get up and say, you know what Brother Frank just shared about us worshiping three gods is not right. Someone needs to get up and say that. So this is an act of leadership being implied in the gathered church. It is, in effect, in effect, setting doctrinal direction for the church. I think that that's the heart of the concern here. So the Apostle Paul is not a misogynist. He's not a woman hater. He knows that men and women are created absolutely equal, absolutely equal in value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God. But we find in Scripture at times, differing roles in the family and in the church. And in the church, we find male leadership through the office of elder. That's why we have an elder down front, like Joshua mentioned, by the microphone. If someone feels impressed to possibly share something, well, so please share it with that person first. 
sort of evaluating in advance. If something were to be shared that is in obvious and concerning error, I would or one of the elders would need to get up and address that, and we would. That's the context. It's a concern about leadership, I think especially doctrinal leadership, for the gathered congregation. And I think that's why we read in verse 35, if there is anything they, the wives, desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, just to be clear, <laughs> this is not saying women must only be learners and never teachers. Uh, later on, read Acts chapter 18. And you'll find a wife and a husband, Priscilla and Aquila, hearing a powerful preacher named Apollos, who doesn't have the gospel, the good news, right yet, not fully right yet. So both Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team, take Apollos aside to, quote, explain the way of God miraculously. Priscilla said, Apollos, that was a good message. You're a fine teacher, but yet you don't have everything quite right yet. Aquila and I are going to have a little private tutoring session to help you. Acts chapter 18. I thought of my wife here who has more scripture memorized, meditated on, and applied to her life than I do. Probably doesn't surprise you. She's a woman of the word, and I learn much from her. I think it could be said of many, many, many women here what Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, author of the classic Pilgrim's Progress. Spurgeon said of Bunyan, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. He just bleeds Bible. Ladies of Grace Church, your blood is bibline too. You have much to teach. So husbands, don't misuse, misuse a verse like 35 and say, you just need to listen to me. Because this verse says, you learn from me, so you just need to listen to me. That's uh, wrong answer. And wives, if your husband is distorting Scripture to symphony, sinfully, rather, sinfully manipulate you or sinfully seek to control you, would you please call me? or call one of the elders, we want to help. So, back to my point. Is this kind of active leadership here, this weighing of Scripture publicly, is this kind of active leadership in the Sunday service a, a Faustian bargain? Is pastoral oversight of the service some kind of deal with the devil that quenches the spirit? This passage would say no, no. In fact, the apostle is providing and modeling that kind of leadership in the passage, isn't he? He's saying, look, two or three prophets, that's enough, one at a time. He's regulating real spirit-empowered expressions in the church. He doesn't think it quenches the spirit at all. So let us not set aside or set against each other leadership and spontaneity. Let's not set against each other pastoral oversight and the work of the spirit. We want leadership. We want to be leaders who make room for the spontaneous. Yes. While providing leadership that serves for edification 
and oversees doctrinal direction. And ladies, use your gifts. <laughs> your blood is bibline. Keep praying and prophesying in the gathered congregation and please keep using your gifts in countless, countless ways in this church. We need you and you know that. All right, third ingredient, third ingredient. Let's see the third ingredient that I would call apostolic authority. There's ordered spontaneity. There's active leadership, at least as an inference here. And thirdly, there is right on the face of it, apostolic authority. Let's look at verse 36. Or, was it for, from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And don't you love this last sentence? If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. <laughs> you should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He says, what I am writing to you, Corinthians, is coming to you with the authority of the risen Christ because I am an apostle of the risen Christ. If you think you are a prophet, if you think you are spiritual, if you think you are a spiritual person, you will in fact agree with me. Now think about that. He's defining spirituality by submission to this book. Because here, friends, in this book we have preserved for us apostolic authority. Here we have preserved for us the commands of the Lord. And so with full apostolic authority, he concludes our series saying in verse 39, So my brothers earnestly desire, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, which is an amazing statement because how wacko they had gotten. But all things, all things should be done decently and in order. Now, some might see a Faustian bargain there, a, a bad trade. For they would say, gifts like New Testament prophecy undermine the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. A church cannot be committed to apostolic authority in Scripture and embrace all these gifts, as a prominent leader said recently. So is that true? Is it true that you can't hold objective truth and believe in subjective impressions. Are such churches today mythical creatures like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot? <laughs> Have such churches become extinct <laughs> like the dinosaurs? No. No, as long as the authority of God's Word is governing our spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences. That's the key. I'm glad for the gift of New Testament prophecy. Verse 3 of this chapter gave us a very positive mission statement for it. Encouragement, consolation, edification. 
but it's just in part, you'll recall. It's just in part. It's not how we infallibly hear God speaking to us. Perhaps you saw what John Piper wrote a number of years ago. Pastor Piper wrote the following. He said, let me tell you about a most wonderful experience I had early Monday morning. God actually spoke to me. There is no doubt it was God. I heard the words in my head just as clearly as when a memory of a conversation passes through your consciousness. The words were in English, but they had about them an absolutely self-authenticating ring of truth. And then he says, best of all, those words are available to all. If you would like to hear the very same words I heard from God on a couch in northern Minnesota, read Psalm 66. Very important, friends. That's what I mean by only hearing God infallibly in Holy Scripture as you open up His Word. You hear God speaking to you in the apostolic authority preserved for us. And that's why, that's why such apostolic authority must govern our spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences. Here's, here's an example. Tim Keller, in his book Prayer, tells about George Whitfield. Whitfield was a prominent figure in the Great Awakening, that really amazing revival that happened in the 18th century. Whitfield was arguably one of the most spirit-empowered preachers in church history. I would encourage you to read the Arnold Dallimore biography of Whitfield. There's a, there's a one volume and there's a two volume. I've read the one volume. You will be astounded, utterly astounded, how, how the Spirit of God used this man. Well, in 1743, a son was born to George and his wife, Elizabeth. And George had a strong impression that God was saying to him that his child would grow up to be, quote, a preacher of the everlasting gospel. He named his son John for that reason, after John the Baptist. Whitfield then preached a sermon to a large crowd about the great works God would do through his son. And then tragically, at four months of age, his son died. Well, later, Whitfield, to his credit, was convicted of how wrong he had been to count his subjective impressions as equal in authority with the objective Word of God and how he had led his congregation astray in that way. My point, friends, is that apostolic authority the command of the Lord coming to us in this book alone must govern all spiritual experience and all expression of spiritual gifts. But as it does, we don't have to choose between objective truth and subjective experience. It's not either or. It's both and, as long as this is the trump card as long as this is the authority, the Supreme Court for us, at all times. So, back to where we start. Is it a 
Faustian bargain, a deal with the devil for our Sunday services, if we embrace all the spiritual gifts of the New Testament, is that a bad trade? That everything must be planned, everything must be predictable, or we open the door to chaos. Everything must be structured and nothing spontaneous. Or, on the other hand, on the other hand, is it a Faustian bargain, a bad deal, when we do plan? Is it a bad trade when we have structure and intentionality, creeds and sacraments, responsive readings and benedictions? Do those things quench the Spirit of God? In which way does the church sell her soul? The answer is neither one. The bad trade, according to this passage, is if we let either one go. The bad trade, according to this passage, is if we fail to hold these things together. The better and more biblical way, according to Scripture, is to hold the structured and the spontaneous together. The planned and the unplanned together. The objective and the subjective together with the authority of God's Word always ruling over it all. So let me summarize how I think we can hold these things together. In fact, let me let someone else summarize it for you. Let me allow the words of Ray Ortland Jr. to help us how we can hold these things together. Ray Ortland Jr., in his book, from which I stole this title, When God Comes to Church, which I recommend, he writes, follow God's word fully. Follow God's word fully, friends. That's our authority. But don't censor it. Don't whittle it down to the narrow confines of your comfort zones. Trust that God is wise in all his word and ways. And so pray. Pray for more of him than you've ever had before. And then go beyond praying. Expect. Expect him to show himself near to you in new ways that will delight you and honor his name. That's what I hope you take away from this passage. That's what we hope you take away from this little mini-series. Follow God's word fully. That is our objective authority now and always. But don't restrict God's word, as Ortland says, to your comfort zone. That's the danger. Don't whittle it down, as it were. Instead, pray. Pray for more of Him. Pray for more of Him than you've ever had before. Pray and expect. Pray and expect God to answer your prayers. Expect God to show himself near to you and to use you in building up the body of Christ and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in ways that will delight you and honor him. Amen? Amen. So let us close by celebrating the one who's made all of that possible, the Lord Jesus Christ.